0: Hello everyone, I'm Omar Sahak, and I want to welcome you to this episode where we'll showcase stories about the triumphs and tribulations faced by medical students and doctors during their training. The idea for this episode came from some complicated experiences I and my co-producer Fiona Scott had during medical school, such as mourning the death of our patient for the first time or struggling to measure up to the demands we faced. Oftentimes we found that sharing these experiences with colleagues greatly helped both of normalizing and processing our complicated feelings. It even inspired Fiona to start an amazing blog, which you should definitely check out, at View 22 at blogspot.com. But it also made us wonder about all of the stories that our colleagues don't tell, the ones that we're carrying around with us as we develop in our careers. Here we try to capture some of those stories. First, you'll meet Dr. Jorge Garcia. He's an esteemed physician, mentor, and administrator at UC Davis School of Medicine. He'll reflect on his first year as an internal medicine resident, and a time when he felt that a mistake he had made had caused the death of his patient. Then we'll eavesdrop on a group of third and fourth year medical students, one of whom, Melanie Coppola, will reflect on her last four years from the perspective of being a near graduate. We hope that you enjoyed these stories as much as we did. And use them as an opportunity to share your own stories, not only among each other, but with podcast mediums such as this. But without further ado, here's our first story. Hello, Dr. Garcia. How are you? Good, how are you? Okay. <laughs> I'm hanging in. I just never have enough time to do what I want to do. I'm thinking like,
1: man, how is this going to go down? But I uh, come from very humble beginnings. My um, My parents are are basically immigrants to this country. My dad never finished high school. My mom never finished grammar school. Miraculously, I got into UC San Francisco, my dream school. There's a whole long story about how that went down, but we'll save it for another time. Okay, so uh, I cared for a patient who was an extremely obese man. In fact, the term morbidly obese would almost be an understatement. Uh, I was an intern in the midst of my first year of internal medicine residency training at a busy Northern California County hospital. We had admitted the man to our service with heart failure in the setting of untreated obstructive sleep apnea. He was an undocumented Mexican national and we knew nothing about his past medical history. He had not previously presented to our hospital or hospital-based primary care clinic. He told me that he worked as a coyote, so he smuggled undocumented Mexicans into the United States for cash, and he had no roots to our local community, no family in the area. As usual, uh, it was an extremely busy call night for us. My resident, an aloof and extraordinarily arrogant man, (laughs) had once again left me flying solo. Unlike my first resident, the woman who would forever define the title, role and responsibility of resident physician for me, this current resident believed in the sink or swim approach to medical education. He loved ordering his interns around and he couldn't and wouldn't be bothered by our questions. When we forgot this rule and mistakenly asked him for a question. His terse answers were always, look it up, call the pharmacy. I'm not here to do your job. Uh, His demeanor daily reinforced the notion that we were quote unquote lower beings, barely worthy of being in his presence. Uh, in the early 1990s, there were no work hour restrictions, and racking up 80 hours of work per week was a regular occurrence. The workload and frenetic pace of our call days were nearly overwhelming, a toxic combination to our senses, series of body blows with regular shocks to the senses. We just did the best we could to survive uh, and to cling to our sanity. The mantra that sustained me during those years was, this place is totally crazy, but I'm not. When the post-call morning came, I was rushing around as usual, pre-rounding on all my patients and preparing for attending rounds. I went to see uh, my extremely obese patient with heart failure. Uh, As I woke him up, he complained about the continuous positive airway pressure, CPAP device we had ordered for him and the terrible night he had using it. He quickly followed the complaints with two burning questions he had. What time is breakfast? And I need to urinate. Can you help me with that? I told him that breakfast would be delivered in the next hour or so, and I asked him uh, where his urinal bottle was. I don't have one. Can you please bring me one? Oh, man, I thought, I I really don't have time for this right now. There's so much to do. Nonetheless, I put down my paperwork and x-rays and uh, raced to the Cleed supply utility room to fetch him a urinal bottle. When I returned, I said, here you go. Uh, Oh, that won't work, he said. Uh, I won't be able to use it on my own. Can you help me with it? Damn, I thought. <laughs> I'm never going to make it up to rounds on time. Uh, taking in a deep breath, I put on some gloves and asked him to get into a comfortable position. Uh, he pulled back his blanket and sheet uh, and revealed his enormous frame. Uh, I nearly gasped at the sight of his near-naked body. I don't think I'd ever seen a man as large as he was. Uh, so I instructed him to roll on his side. Uh, I'll never forget his belly jiggling as he somehow propelled his body onto his left side with three or four big jerking movements. Uh, I then moved into position and strained as I bent over, lifted his huge penis, and struggled to get his small, buried penis into the mouth of the urinal. Uh, okay, senor, okay, I encouraged him, but he didn't start to pee. Within seconds, I noticed that his belly started to jerk upward, almost violently, uh, and he loudly snorted three or four times. He then fell silent and seemed to lose consciousness. The following moments seemed surreal. What was happening? Is he coating right before my eyes? This can't be happening. I frantically called out to him, Señor, Señor. I went to his head and gently slapped his cheek as I desperately tried to awaken him. Oh, senor, wake up, come on, please, wake up. Seconds later, I was screaming out, code blue, code blue, but it seemed as if the words weren't even coming out of my mouth. My eyes darted over his gigantic frame, but my mind and body seemed to be shutting down. I I was frozen, paralyzed uh, with disbelief and fear. Uh, The next thing I remember, nurses and physicians were coming in the room, saying, what's the situation? But I couldn't give a coherent answer. Uh, I then recall someone just grabbing me by the front of my white coat with two hands and just kind of pulling me out of the room as others just jumped into action to begin to resuscitate him. Uh, in the hallway, I just I started to cry as I struggled to make sense of the situation. Um, I, I felt this strange mix of powerful emotions, disbelief, grief, crushing disappointment, and mounting anger at my total and inexplicable failure to handle the situation. Minutes later, my resident came on the scene and asked me what what was happening. I gave him uh, my tearful summary, and he promptly went to grab the patient's chart back when we had paper charts. He quickly rifled through the chart, and then he came back uh, to yell at me, Garcia, you idiot. You didn't write him for any uh, heparin for DVT prophylaxis congratulations you just notched your first kill so dealing with this patient's death was one of the hardest things i've had to deal with in my professional and actually personal life um my patient had presumably suffered a massive pulmonary embolism because i somehow forgot to place him on subcutaneous heparin. how did that happen right um Part of me wanted to blame the resident for having me fly solo. Like, that would have never happened with my previous resident, right? We always carefully went over the orders together, right? So that we wouldn't miss anything. But but I knew in the end, like, it still was my responsibility, right? I, I can't tell you why I forgot to write that order, right? It seems so stupid now, so stupid, right? It's almost like looking at the order sheet it had to be there, but it just, I didn't write it down. Um, did he die of a PE, right? Uh, because of his social situation, there was no next of kin to contact. We couldn't do post-boredom, so I don't know, right? It sure seemed like a PE. It sure seemed like I killed him. So grappling with that, I didn't even want to go back to work, right? I didn't want to risk killing somebody else that I would make uh, a similar oversight or worse. Um, And so I I had a lot of soul searching to do. I I had a lot of things to figure out. Uh, There was a part of me that really wanted to quit. Uh, But fortunately, I had had a supportive network of family and friends that really helped me begin to process through that. Helped me see that there's only so much that we can control. And I think ultimately helped me see that um, there was already so much invested in me, so much that I had invested in this, that um, that there was still an opportunity to do good to maybe redeem myself, to maybe make the situation right in some way. It it surely taught me a lot about medicine. I I always say that it's one of humanity's great team endeavors. And and I think this experience really kind of made me the professor I am today in terms of knowing that we cannot put any student, any intern any resident in a position where they feel unsupported or alone, right? Um, It it also helped me appreciate the systems we create, right? Um, We are very fallible and perfect beings, and so we're going to create infallible, or actually fallible. (laughs) See how it is? Fallible, imperfect systems. And so, I don't know, to the extent that we can build in safeguards I think that's critical I think that's critical um, it's interesting it, it's still a weight that I carry right knowing that that um, I played a role in, in that right that had I done my job better had I not had that oversight like he he might have lived to improve his health lose weight get treated I don't know how do we deal with death the best we can
2: things have given me as much joy as writing for you over the past four years one thing that has is when my humble slice of the internet allows someone else to share something important something meaningful something wonderful and with that it is my great privilege to play host to the wise words of melanie coppola i'll eat you up i love you so <laughs> <laughs> okay it hit me on the sunday after match that med school was almost over a day after hanging out with part of our rural prime cohort. These were the OGs, the ones I met before med school started. Our same doctorate group since first year, Mm -hmm. and now it was coming to a close. A time for one last hangout before the final goodbyes. I've always been a fan of Irish goodbyes, slipping out the door unnoticed. It's less drama, and I'll see you tomorrow for coffee anyway. But I'm moving. I'm moving to New York. What the hell was I thinking? (laughs) Many of you will still be in proximity to each other or even be co-interns, but you may feel the same sentiments as me in regards to medical school. I started med school when I was just 22 and it has been one of the most significant times of my life. Perhaps I might say the same of residency when it comes to a close, but I grew up. We all grew. Even if you started med school at 50, you have grown. It was a journey, for me probably filled with many more firsts than most. Med school was the first time I felt like I found my people, the first time I got drunk, the first time I felt (laughs) heartache, the first time I knew I could be a doctor, and the first time I believed I was a failure. Med school is unlike any other, tested and pushed and expected to be, to do, to act in every which way. My friend Daniel jokingly said, It's like going through trauma. It bonds us. Mm -hmm. Morbid and true. These four years were certainly not all daisies. Third year and parts of fourth year rolled around and made me hate med school, and I hated it a lot. But the beauty of sentiment is the view through heavily tinted rose-colored glasses. Mm -hmm. You see, I'm surprised to find myself fond of my worst memories. I recall them now realizing how far i've come and who i've become because of these moments i think back to when i cried in my car the first time i interviewed a standardized patient in front of my doctoring group i thought i wasn't good enough i didn't know what i was doing but each of you has been there along with me helping me helping each other it's the small moments that stick out the most dylan making me laugh about our crazy surgery chief president angel tossing a football with me when i felt like crap after a step one practical test or practice test, Christiana quizzing me on histo slides, Fiona proofreading my emails, and way too many rural prime vent sessions. I'm realizing that it's not just med school that has shaped me, but each one of you. Living in Sacramento has been fun, but I don't think I actually love Sacramento. I think I love how I could walk down a street and name off certain memories. I could count on seeing Guggen at Tupelo, Eman used to live at Alhambra Starbucks, Deep conversations with Omar would always happen at the Temple. In third year, Eric and I uh, basically went to every bar, and Tower Cafe was for post-quiz brunches with, when Daniel and I felt especially accomplished. Mm. Now I know these random things, like the quickest way to R Street from any location, and the ability to list off every Starbucks, even the new ones, and the ones that serve alcohol. <laughs> I'm sad and excited to leave, but this phrase keeps coming in my head. No one else will know. When I leave, no one else will know know about the ping pong tournaments or spamming the online setups with memes. No one else will know about hating coming to MedEd and just not doing instead. No one else will know how frustrating parking was during construction, mm. or still getting ticketed when you secretly parked at the gym. No one else will know about avoiding the mic during Olsen's pathology TBLs or calculating your grade every week in the spreadsheet or Beyonce playing at the white coat ceremony, (laughs) McCurry in his unicycle, Aronowitz being a legend, our picture collection of people sleeping, the Halloween parties that always got out of hand, being nervous when Dr. Gross came to your cadaver, Dr. Henderson who oddly always remembered your name, no one else will know, only us, so I think I owe medical school and you more than just an Irish goodbye. Each of you in the class of two thousand eighteen. Thank you for your heart, your humor, and your passions. For the memories, I would never change. Love, Melanie Kapoor. Mm. <laughs> <clears throat> Melanie, that's yeah.
1: so good, so good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> thank you. Well,
2: thanks, Fiona, for letting me. Anytime.
0: Hey, thank you again for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed these stories. And please subscribe to the Mountain Lion Podcast for more episodes. Take care.